This concept of spiritual warfare, where believers are engaged in a struggle against the spiritual forces of evil, makes the angelic host necessary in the furniture of belief. Furniture of belief. Furniture of belief. This is your nautical lantern on the dangerous seas of darkness. Let's push off from the placid shore of the status quo and explore what's beyond the horizon. I am your host, BT, and this is Truth and Shadow, your podcast of the supernatural. Welcome to another captivating episode of the Truth and Shadow podcast. I am your host, BT, and I am thrilled to present Episode 4, Season 1. In this episode, we will embark on a profound journey into the realm of spiritual beings, specifically angels. Prepare yourselves to delve deep into their enigmatic existence, explore the intertestamental time, and uncover the fascinating stories of named angels. We will also touch upon the intriguing concept of angels taking human form or discuss the heavenly host. We'll briefly address the complex topic of fallen angels and contemplate their potential for redemption. Lastly, we'll delve into the myths and unanswered questions surrounding these celestial beings. Join us on this enlightening expedition into the captivating world of angels. Angels have captivated the human imagination for centuries. These ethereal beings have been depicted in various art forms, such as mosaics, sculptures, icons, and paintings, often portrayed with an otherworldly beauty and divine purpose. Despite their prevalence in religious text and cultural symbolism, the true essence of angels remains veiled in mystery. In this exploration, we will endeavor to unravel the inexplicable nature of angels, delving deep into their significance of the multifaceted aspects that make them an enduring subject of human fascination. One of the intriguing aspects that I find of angels is their presence across different cultures. The angelic entity transcends religious and cultural boundaries, appearing in various forms and under other names worldwide. They serve as messengers, protectors, and intermediaries between the divine and the earthly realm. In Christianity, angels hold a prominent role as messengers of God. They are crucial in conveying divine messages and giving individuals guidance on their spiritual journey. Figures such as Gabriel, Michael, Raphael occupy significant positions in the angelic hierarchy, each possessing unique attributes and responsibilities. Judaism itself boasts a rich tradition of encounters with the angels. The concept of angels as divine messengers is deeply ingrained within Jewish beliefs. These celestial beings are vital in delivering divine revelation and assisting individuals in their spiritual quest. The nature of angels, specifically, remains a fundamental mystery, with varying interpretations across the religious and spiritual belief systems. In many traditions, angels are regarded as spiritual entities devoid of physical bodies, existing solely as intellectual beings in an ethereal form. They are often depicted as radiant beings of light surpassing human comprehension. This portrayal aligns with the notion of angels as divine messengers, making them unrestricted by the constraints of the material world. 
However, not all perspectives view angels as entirely material. Some belief systems propose angels can manifest in physical form when required. This adds a layer of complexity to the enigma surrounding angels, as they can assume the appearance of ordinary humans, or even as other earthly creatures, like donkeys. And this only heightens the mystery surrounding their interactions with mortals. Angels are commonly depicted as benevolent entities with a divine purpose. They fulfill various roles, such as being protectors or guides for individuals on their journey. And within Christianity, they seem to be entrusted with delivering important revelations and guidance to individuals. For instance, the angel Gabriel played a pivotal role in announcing the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. Also, Judaism emphasizes the involvement of angels in human affairs. They serve as guardians and mentors, often appearing to give guidance or convey divine messages. For example, when they appear to Abraham to help his nephew Lot. Now, the mysterious nature of angels goes beyond religious texts. It also seems to encompass history and literature, throughout which numerous accounts of encounters with angels have left a lasting impact on the people and their society. These encounters often occur during moments of great importance, crisis. People facing adversity may share stories of angelic visitations that provided them comfort. These narratives are profoundly personal and offer solace during their difficult times. In literature, angels are a recurring theme, both representing the mysterious and the divine. They appear in fiction and in poetry, embodying humanity's longing for transcendence and connection with the sacred. Authors have utilized angels to explore themes of morality, of faith, and the aspects of the spiritual realm. Somebody back in the 90s even tallied the word angel appears in one song out of ten. One of the most renowned literary portrayals of angels can be found in John Milton's epic, Paradise Lost, where the angel plays a significant role in the cosmic battle between good and evil. These literary interpretations add depth to the enigma, transforming them into symbols of profound human aspiration and dilemmas. During the intertestamental period, which spanned from the return of the Jewish nation of Jerusalem around 600 B.C., to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, Jewish religious thought and literature experienced significant expansion. The period gave rise to texts and ideas that greatly influenced Jewish, Christian, and even later Islamic thought. In this historical context, we would be remiss to miss the use of military language to describe angels. During the Second Temple period, it was a time marked by political unrest, religious reform, and a longing for divine intervention. As a result, the terminology used to depict angels reflected the desire for celestial assistance during adversity. Historical events, such as the Maccabean War, in which the forces of the Seleucid Empire clashed with the Jewish armies, this further emphasized these angelic soldiers' strength, unity, and purpose. During the Second Temple period, angelology exhibited a notable characteristic in the form of the names assigned to angelic groups. These names went beyond being mere symbols and instead carried connotations that were both materialistic and aggressive. This choice of terminology highlighted the perception of angels as celestial warriors, provided evidence of their martial roles. An interesting aspect in the abundance of combat-related terms associated with angels, they are frequently referred to as troops, warriors, and companies. The deliberate use of such terminology was not arbitrary. It was a conscious decision to emphasize the angel's own active and robust nature within the cosmic order. 
Depicting angels as troops and warriors implies their preparedness for battle and involvement, safeguarding the advancing divine purpose. They are not passive observers, but active participants in the divine plan. This portrayal resonated with the prevailing ethos of the era, during which the Jews often found themselves in situations that necessitated divine intervention. The study of angelology, which focuses on angels, has contributed significantly to our understanding of the mysterious realm. Scholars in the field have conducted extensive research, revealing intricate hierarchical structures among angels and their divine roles in the spiritual domain. One intriguing aspect uncovered by angelology is the existence of the hierarchies. These hierarchies establish a precise order and organization among the angels, with notable figures as Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael assuming leadership roles in those hierarchies, guiding and directing their celestial counterparts. Furthermore, that militaristic terminology adds another layer of significance to this context. They're not merely depicted as troops and warriors, but integral parts of a structured and organized army, the army of the heavenly host. Several passages in the Old Testament describe end-of-time battles involving the army of the Holy Ones. These celestial warriors unleash God's wrath upon their earthly and heavenly foes. One of the most notable examples of this theme can be found in the book of Daniel. Daniel 12.1, it is written, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never before since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. This passage portrays Michael as a heavenly warrior and defender of God's people a role that aligns with the concept of angels as champions and fighters for divine justice. This idea of angelic armies goes beyond the traditional scriptures and is also present in the pseudepigraphical texts. These texts, attributed to various historical figures, Abraham or Enoch, offer unique insights into angelology and the significance of angels in the spiritual realm. Enoch mentions the Watchers, and they stand out as guardians and elite forces. Therefore, the Watchers are a crucial part of pseudepigraphical literature. They capture the rebellious watchers and their offspring, the Nephilim. These celestial warriors are portrayed as powerful and devoted beings to the divine order, engaging in battles on earth and in heaven to maintain the balance. One of the most remarkable scenes in the book of Enoch is when God reveals the hierarchy and divisions of the heavenly and earthly forces to Enoch in a visionary encounter. God explicitly states, I created the ranks of the bodiless armies, ten myriads of angels, and their weapons are fiery, and their clothes are burning flames. The enigmatic depiction of angels as soldiers also finds expression in the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. This collection of writings is divided into twelve separate works, each dedicated to one of the sons of Jacob. These texts provide insights into the spiritual legacies and blessings bestowed upon these patriarchs by their father Jacob. One instance in the pseudepigraphical work is the appearance of a solitary angelic soldier on behalf of Judah. In this narrative, a divine being serves as a defender and protector of Judah, underscoring the concept of angels as a guardian for people. Also, in the Testament of Levi, it includes a request by Levi to see an angelic host. Now, This account is fascinating as it allows readers to envision the heavenly army and the angels organized in this hierarchical structure. While the specific angel is not named, most scholars identify the angel in this instance, as Michael. 
And as we explore the enigmatic essence of angels, it becomes clear that depicting angels as heavenly warriors is a multifaceted concept deeply rooted in these religious and historical contexts. Whether viewed as defenders or agents of divine justice, the portrayal of angels as celestial warriors adds a lack of complexity to our understanding of these ethereal beings and who they are in the heavenly host. The next idea I want to cover is this concept of angels taking human form. And not only does it fascinate me, it fascinates a lot of scholars. And it probably fascinates you, the listener. Theologians and other believers have been intrigued by the idea that angels appear as ordinary men. Whenever we see them in the Old Testament, they appear as ordinary men, except in prophetic visions. There's a couple cases in the book of Zechariah where... It's mentioned that he sees women with uh, wings like swans, and we will address wings on angels towards the end of this conversation. But this ability to appear as ordinary humans, yet with extraordinary features, is the intriguing aspect inside the study of angelology. When we look back at the texts, pseudopragraphical or the apocryphal texts, we find this phenomenon prevalent during that second temple period. For example, in the Book of Enoch, it offers this fascinating glimpse into the duality of angels' nature. Sometimes the angels are described as being like flames of fire, and yet they can also take human wives. Sure, the flames of fire represent the celestial and otherworldly aspect of the angel, and they are often seen as angels of pure light, radiating this ethereal beauty transcending human comprehension, and the celestial form aligns with the ideas of angels as messengers, but when angels choose to interact with humans, they can appear as ordinary men. This transformative capability is consistent in this era and in these texts, and it's not merely a matter of disguise. It seems to represent a fundamental aspect of their role as intermediaries. The Book of Tobit, for example, composed in the 3rd century BC, serves as a prime example. The narrative revolves around Tobit and his son Tobias who embark on this journey to Medea to collect a debt. On their journey, they encounter a mysterious man who, unbeknownst to them, is the angel Raphael. Raphael conceals his true identity, assuming the appearance of a human companion for Tobit and Tobias. This deliberate act, veiling his celestial nature, is a common motif in angelic encounters. Notably, Raphael does not reveal his true identity until the conclusion of the book, Interestingly enough, the book of Tobit presents a subtle twist in the portrayal of the angelic encounter. In Tobit 5.6, there's a suggestion that Raphael shared a meal with, with the two. However, the angel attributes this encounter to a vision seen in a mirror. The first century work known as Joseph and Aseneth provides another intriguing example. In this narrative, a heavenly figure appears to the protagonist, Joseph, in the guise of a man. However, the description of this angelic visitor is far from ordinary. See, the angel in the story possesses features that set him apart from mortals. His face radiates like lightning and his eyes shine like the sun, and his hair resembles flames of fire. Additionally, his feet glow like shining iron with sparks emanating from his hand. These descriptions could convey an image of celestial grandeur and power, while the angel's choice to appear as a man underscores this constant theme of angels as some kind of stand-between of the material and the heavenly realms. What's striking about this narrative is that despite these extraordinary attributes, 
The angel accepts the hospitality of Joseph and even requests honeycomb as food. The belief that angels can assume human form with unique and sometimes dazzling attributes is firmly rooted in Old Testament passages involving angels taking human embodiment, fleshly embodiment. And these qualities carry significant theological and philosophical implications. One of the most iconic examples of angels adopting human form can be found in Genesis 6, 1-4. And in this case, it's not angels appearing as humans. It's angels, according to the book of Enoch, removing their okaterion, their heavenly bodies, and adopting that of flesh and blood. And it's noteworthy throughout the story of Genesis that in these instances, those who encounter them initially perceive them as ordinary men. And we see that when the two quote-unquote angels go to minister to Lot and remove him and his wife and children, etc., from Saddam. We move to Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian of the first century AD, who also contributes to our understanding of angels and their activities. In his writings, Josephus describes angels as performing a range of actions, including fighting and wielding swords, which parallels the early parts of Genesis when an angel is set to guard the gates of Eden like a, as a flaming sword. And this depiction of angelic combat further the argument and concept of angels as the heavenly warrior, which means that angels in the accounts provided by Josephus are not passive or purely messengers. They engage in active roles, intervening in human affairs. In the Second Temple period, descriptions of angels appearing as men become more elaborate. It's important to note that in the Old Testament, it is relatively rare for angels to be visibly distinct from humans. Those who encounter such angelic figures often perceive them as ordinary men, as seen in chapters like Genesis 19 or Genesis 32, or in Judges chapter 6. I wanted to look at the concept of a divine council, a spiritual assembly of sorts, and in short, this idea of the heavenly host seen as a, as a celestial assembly that convenes in a heavenly realm, appears in Psalm 82. And whether the entities appearing with Elohim, with God, are angels or some other kind of being is clearly up for discussion. But this assembly includes entities that are not Yahweh, not God, but they seem to serve as advisors and messengers, and they participate in divine deliberations. And we see this in a couple of instances we see that in Job, God's got his group of people, and Satan is coming along from wandering the world, and God's like, hey, have you noticed my servant Job? It's great. Seems like, yeah, I can make him hate you. Give me a chance. God gives permission. We have another instance in a book where God wants to punish somebody, and an angel suggests that they send a lying spirit to him, and God's yeah, let's send a lying spirit to this man, to the prophets, that any of the words that are coming out of the mouths of his prophets, they're all lies. And it's by suggestion from an angel. Of course, when you think about angels talking with God, I'm pretty sure that there's no bad ideas that are going to be mentioned. And I'm pretty sure that they conceive of things similarly in the ways that Yahweh is going to concept them. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had that story. It would have made no sense that an angel suggests something and then God's like, good with it. And this means that there's this interplay that's going on between 
this celestial assembly and this heavenly host as a council or an army don't only advise and participate in divine governance, but they also actively engage in the struggle for the righteous and the protection of divine order. So this heavenly council can be seen as the decision-making body, where discussions about divine plans and interventions take place. This is this council that the fate of nations, the revelation of messages, and the execution of divine justice are considered. Simultaneously, the celestial army, representing the execution and enforcement arm of the council's decisions, take the actions. We have the angel of death coming and killing the firstborn in Egypt during the plague of the firstborn. And we have Satan, who was an angel of light, coming and being a pest to Job. These biblical and extra-biblical references to the divine host as a divine council or a celestial army are abundant and diverse. And that leads us to talk about some of the specific angels and specific concepts within the religious tradition. The Archangel Michael, for example, he's a prominent figure in the Second Temple Judaism, early Christianity. He's often depicted as the leader of a heavenly host. He's the one who contends with Satan over the body of Moses. The book of Daniel portrays him as a protector of God's people. And then in the book of Revelations, Michael is described as leading the battle against the dragon and the evil forces. We see Raphael mentioned in the book of Tobit. He's this entity who brings healing. He teaches Tobias how to cure a blind person with the gall of a fish, no less. He's a healer. His name means God heals. And he only makes his presence in the Bible in the book of Tobit while appearing in other texts that are outside of the canon of Scripture. We also have consistent mentions of angelic messengers. These are unnamed entities that appear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. They deliver these important messages. For example, Gabriel he comes to, at the Annunciation to Mary about the birth of Jesus, or Zechariah, and the mention of John the Baptist. Lastly, spiritual warfare, which we will get into in another episode deeply. This one, this concept of spiritual warfare, where believers are engaged in a struggle against the spiritual forces of evil, makes the angelic host necessary in the furniture of belief, if you will. And we'll talk about here in a little bit what belief in angels means and why it's important to believe in them, and we will define what belief means. A handful of things of note is the presence of angels in art and literature. Angels, whether named or unnamed, are present in music, as I mentioned earlier. Or Somebody in the 90s said that one in ten songs of his day mentions the word angel. He might have been listening to Sarah McLaughlin one too many times, maybe. But nevertheless, this consistent use of angels within art and music is present in the modern age, where we have surges of belief in angels through time, which might correspond as it did with the Second Temple period. It might correspond with struggle, because when we struggle in this seemingly flat universe, this one-dimensional feeling universe, and we reach out a hand as a child, we find comfort in being able to hold the hand of someone much stronger than us. And so it was in the Second Temple era, common for people to believe and understand, even Jesus mentions, that children have guardian angels, and their angels always stand before the face of God. And with that in mind, when we reach out our hand, 
we can have comfort that there is a battle being waged and those weapons belong in the hands of the unseen who fight on your behalf in your spiritual battles. You have entire prayer warriors alive here, your brothers in the faith, and you have myriads of angels who are combating your spiritual enemies by the power of God. And while we will talk about fallen angels and sinister forces in the demonic in another set of podcasts, I do need to make mention that angels fall. And it's my opinion that there has been a couple of instances of angels falling, and not just once. I believe there was a fall of angels at the beginning of the creation of mankind. I believe there was a fall of angels when the watchers came down in Genesis. And I think there was another fall of angels when Jesus was to become incarnate. The Hebrew text, the New Testament text, do not imply or infer that angels cannot fall at any other given time. In fact, the book of Job makes it quite clear that God doesn't see the heavenly host as holy and pure, which means that angels with free will may at any given moment outside of time may fall and then be here in time, whenever that might happen. They may shed their okateri on their heavenly bodies. And the concept of fallen angels and their potential for redemption is a deeply intriguing and complex theme. You have people who talk about they pray for the salvation of Satan as if he could turn from his hatred of God. And it has captivated human imagination for centuries, spanning religions, mythologies, and traditions, yet carrying profound theological and philosophical implications. The idea of angelic beings for various reasons, who have rebelled against divine authority, lost their exalted status, is a reoccurring theme. Perhaps the most famous fallen angel in Western culture is Satan or the devil, and thanks to the Latin Vulgate, which translated the word morning star, Hillel, star of the morning or the light bringer, Hillel, translated the word into Latin as Lucifer. The biblical passage that's often linked to Lucifer's fall is found in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 which really contains a taunt against a king of Babylon, but seems to be interpreted as describing the pride and downfall of this powerful being. So in Christian tradition, Lucifer's rebellion against God is central to understanding fallen angels. According to this interpretation, Lucifer was an angel of great beauty and intelligence who sought to exalt himself above God. His rebellion led to his expulsion from heaven and became the embodiment of evil. Christian theology has further developed the concept of fallen angels, emphasizing the rebellion against God and even the eternal consequences for their disobedience. These angels that were cast out with Lucifer in his rebellion are often depicted as demons who tempt and corrupt humanity. Now, personally, I believe that the angels who fell did not just become daemonion, because I understand the Greek concept to mean something entirely different. I find the word demon, daemonion, from the Greek to be entities, bastard spirits, if you will, of the deceased Nephilim, that being the offspring of the fallen watchers and human women. And I consider them demons because they come and they appear to do the things that Christian traditions implies demons do. I do not think fallen angels are that way because we understand that the fallen ones, as according to Paul, is we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and dominion. And we will get into principalities, powers, and dominions and what they are in further episodes, which means that the fallen angels remain fallen angels, and fallen angels being what they are, 
and demons being the bastard spirits of the Nephilim, always looking for a body to inhabit, seem to be the one that possess humans. And they like to pretend to be like their daddy, whichever fallen angel they were bred from. They like to claim the names of their daddies. But at the end of the day, they are many, and they like to go out to the desert, or they try to find clean homes to inhabit. And outside of Christianity, other religious and mythological traditions have their own interpretation of fallen beings. In Islamic tradition, you have Iblis, who's often associated as the devil, and typically associated with being the ruler of the jinn, which is a completely different entity, and I will explore the idea of the jinn in another episode. The idea of the redemption of fallen angels is quite a theological and philosophical debate. While it challenges the traditional understanding of fallen angels, which are irredeemable and eternally damned, some believe that they can be saved. And it's not a mainstream belief at all. It has been explored in various ways and offers unique insights in the nature of divine mercy and forgiveness. However, once again, in a further episode when we talk about the sinister forces of fallen angels and the demonic, we will mention why it is that their choices are eternal and non-refundable. And some argue that the Bible itself presents ambiguities regarding the fate of the fallen angels. For example, the book of Jude alludes to an angel who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, being reserved in everlasting chains under the punishment of darkness for the judgment. And some say that this passage leaves room that they might not be damned forever because they will be loosed from their chains, in short. The question of redemption raises a philosophical idea about the nature of divine justice. If fallen angels are created with free will, and God is love itself, isn't there room for God to reconcile with them? And beyond religious texts, mythologies from different cultures often feature narratives of fallen deities or divine beings who seek redemption and transformation. And these stories reflect the enduring human fascination with the idea of fallen beings striving to regain their former glory. Once again, this debate about the redemption of fallen angels continues in the contemporary religious discourse. And it's important to recognize that theological pluralism exists within the religious tradition. Different denominations and theologians may hold diverse views on this topic. So I do not discount that there are those who can say that angels can be redeemed from their fallen nature. I hold strongly against that idea. Others are allowed to have their own diverse view. Now here towards the close of our episode, what I wanted to do was do a, a bit of entertainment, a bit of fun stuff, and that's specifically exploring the names of some of these angels. I'm going to be giving information that's from the common ones that we know, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael. And then what I'll do is I'll talk about some that appear in like Jewish mysticism texts or apocryphal texts. But this idea of name celestial beings really does occupy this special place in the spiritual mythological landscape of cultures around the world. And while these entities have been considered intermediaries between the divine and human, such as carrying out divine commands, offering guidance, and delivering messages to mortals, the named angels play diverse roles in different traditions, and their significance transcends the boundaries of any single faith. Now, archangels are a prominent category of named angels, and they're found in multiple traditions. They're even found in these Zidi peoples, which is a non-Semitic tribe in the Middle East. You may have heard of them during the time that ISIS was trying to wipe out people in the Middle East. 
And the beings, the angelic beings that are archangels, are typically seen as leaders or high-ranking members within the heavenly host. And so the archangel Michael, for example, might be considered an archangel of a specific hierarch class. There are others who believe that Michael isn't the name of a specific being, but Michael is a specific type of angel. He's an archangel. They're archangels, and they are Michael, or they are Gabriel, or they are Raphael. And that's in the belief system of some people. One of the most well-known archangels in Judeo-Christian tradition is the Archangel Michael. And his name, which means who is like God, reflects his role as a defender and protector. Michael is often depicted as a powerful warrior who battles against the forces of evil and defends God's people in righteousness. He's mentioned in the Bible, he's mentioned in the Quran, where his name is associated with the triumph and the defeat of the devil or evil spirits. In Christian tradition, the Archangel Michael is often depicted wielding a sword, leading the heavenly host in battles against evil. He is in some statuary art shown as his foot is on the head of the devil and he's got a sword ready to strike as it is a symbol of the conflict between Michael and Satan in the book of Jude, where he talks about those two contending over the body of Moses. He also appears in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation as a protector of God's people. The Archangel Gabriel, another prominent figure, is often known as a messenger angel. The name means God is my strength, emphasizing the angel's role in delivering divine messages and revelation. In the New Testament, Gabriel plays a significant role in announcing the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. In Islamic tradition, the archangel Gabriel, known as Jibriel, plays a crucial role in delivering God's messages to the prophet Muhammad. The archangel Raphael is primarily associated with healing and wellness. His name means God has healed, highlighting his role in providing spiritual and physical healing to those in need. The book of Tobit in the Old Testament Raphael plays a role in guiding Tobit's son, Tobias, and healing Tobit's blindness. Now, I'm going to talk about a couple that might not appear in regular canonical scriptures, but these are in the naming of angels tradition. Some name Uriel as an archangel. There are four archangels, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel, and they're all given animal figures. Uriel is the meaning God of light which reflects his association with wisdom and enlightenment. Now, while Uriel is not widely known or recognized in mainstream Judeo-Christian traditions as Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, he is a prominent figure in some branches, usually found in apocryphal texts, pseudepigraphical texts. In various religious traditions and mystical writings, Uriel is seen as an angel who imparts wisdom, knowledge, and insight to individuals seeking divine guidance. He's often depicted as holding a book or a scroll, symbolizing the wisdom he offers. In addition to the archangels, Christian tradition acknowledges various other named angels you might find in texts. And while these are not mainstream ideas, they are still named angels in the tradition of naming those heavenly beings. There is Ariel, means Lion of God, which is associated with nature and is often considered the angel who presides over the spirits of the earth. There's Jopiel, it's associated with beauty and creativity. Chamiel, who is considered the angel of love and relationships. Zadkiel, is known for his role in mercy and forgiveness. Now, in Islamic tradition, angels are central to the faith and are considered messengers of God's will. 
Islamic angelology does not emphasize named angels to the same extent as some branches of Christianity, but some beings are recognized for their pivotal roles in carrying out divine revelation. Jibriel, Gabriel, as mentioned earlier, is known as delivering the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad. Israfil is often identified as the angel responsible for blowing the trumpet to announce the Day of Judgment. There's Mikael, Michael, and some Islamic traditions consider him as the angel responsible for providing sustenance and nourishment to God's creatures. And Islamic tradition acknowledges a multitude of angels, each with specific tasks and attributes. These angels play roles in recording human deeds, guarding individuals, and carrying out divine commands. And that's something that I can explore in a further episode later. And some branches of Judaism, mystical traditions, maybe, there are a couple of angelic beings recognized who play distinct roles. We've got Metatron, who's associated with divine secrets and mysteries. Some even say that Enoch, when he was taken into heaven, became this angel. But once again, men do not become angels. Raziel, which means the secret of God, and he's believed to be an angel of mysteries. Sandolphon is considered one of the tallest angels in the angelic hierarchy. He is seen as a guardian of the prayers of the faithful. Now, the concept of named angels or angelic beings extends beyond the Abrahamic faiths. And of interesting note, we do find in Hinduism, there are divine beings known as devas and devatas, and they seem to be akin to angels. We will explore those beings later. In Zoroastrianism, there are angelic beings known as the Yazatas, who assist the supreme deity Ahura Mazda. We'll explore Zoroastrianism in another episode. In Buddhism, while Buddhism does not emphasize angels in the same way, they acknowledge celestial beings known as devas. We'll explore Buddhism in another episode. Finally, ancient mythologies. Once we start going back beyond the Second Temple period to the time of Sumer and then forward, we will be exploring the ancient mythologies therein. We will also look at Greece, Rome, Egypt, and other cultures that have divine beings. Even spend some time talking about the people we commonly call as Vikings. There is an idea of guardian angels I spoke about earlier. Guardian angels, well, not always associated with name angels, and some people even think it's a tradition to name your guardian angel. I advise strongly against this, simply acknowledging that you have a guardian angel and that guardian angel is always before the face of God. In Christian tradition, the belief in the guardian angel is pretty common. These angels are seen as personal protectors and watchers over individuals who offer guidance and intercede on their behalf. You have basically one more interceder who is working for your spiritual well-being. These angels want to see you saved. In Islam, there is a belief in a type of guardian angel. They're known as Karin, and they are one of two angels that are on your shoulders. You have two of them, one on each shoulder. One is designed to write all the good things you do down, and the other angel is designed to write all the bad things you do down. In popular culture, the concept of guardian angel has permeated into references of literature, films, or television shows, and they often are representative of the idea of a benevolent, invisible force that offers comfort and protection. A TV show that was popular was called Touched by an Angel. There's been a handful of other movies that are similar to this. As we conclude this episode and draw an end to it, I wanted to go over a handful of important details and ideas and some myths and rumors and agendas that we may not fully understand with how the angels are. I take it as an objective truth that angels exist, that angels are here, 
They are here with you listening to the words of my voice. They are huge. They are massive. They are warriors. And they are truly present. And I often have to answer the question, what does belief in an angel mean? And that requires me to define belief and what it means to believe in angels. One, we say that belief is that it can be a matter of an opinion. Be like believing that it'll be sunny tomorrow. The second way is belief can mean personal trust. Like you maintain your car to manufacture specifications and you take care of it well. You can trust that it will get you to your job or home. Number three is religious faith. This is where we put stock in salvation or we adore and offer worship to something. And when it comes to angels and the belief in angels, I mean the first two. I believe that it's a mental opinion, and I believe that it's something you can put your life into trusting, that angels are there to fight on your spiritual behalf and to offer prayers before God. It's not the third way, because for it to be part of our religious salvation faith, it would require us to make angels into gods. It would be idolatry. It would require us to do what the fallen ones did to those they were given charge over as we learn in Deuteronomy 32 that God gave the nations to the Bene Elohim, the sons of God. The next couple of things I want to go over are some of these myths or questions that we may have about angels that pop up from time to time. Can they manipulate the material world? Well, the question seems reasonable when we think about it, because we've got these angelic apparitions and appearances through time, and it appears that they become flesh. The truth is, we do not know how angels appear in dreams. They appeared in like Joseph's dream about Jesus. We don't know how they do that. We don't fully understand how it is that the angels are able to come and look in the appearance of man. But they do. Scripture shows that. We do know that when it comes to affecting the material world, we have more scriptural footing on what they can do. The two angels, for example, that visited Lot were able to strike blindness to the men of Saddam. There's no explanation as to how it's done, but we know that the angels did it. We don't know how the angels freed Peter from the chains, but we read about it happening in the book of Acts. We read that it was an angel that moved the stone from the tomb of Jesus in Matthew. But in all of the scriptural evidence about how the angel interacts with the physical and material world is we have no scriptural evidence that members of the heavenly host know a person's minds or thoughts the way God does. And so the question whether angels can read minds is not as silly as it sounds. The last one that I actually want to say, do Christians become angels when they die? It's often part of anecdotal reassurance to people when we lose a loved one that we say that, oh, our loved one is now in heaven with wings, is playing a harp on a cloud. And why these ideas might convey some kind of anecdotal sympathy, that we understand that somebody has lost a loved one, there is no scriptural support that humans become angels when they die. And the reason why we could pull on these threads, some people believe that happens, is because we get statements like that our existence in the afterlife will make us like the angels, as we find in Matthew or Mark. Or that Paul, when we're dealing with being resurrected in celestial flesh, or a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians, we gain these ideas, we shall be like him that we should become partakers of the divine nature. 
that we've been adopted into God's heavenly family, our inheritance is in heaven, and that heaven will come to earth as the new global Eden. We're told in Revelations that we will judge angels, and that means we will judge the fallen angels that make up the sinister forces and did wrong, because we do not become angels when we die. Our glorified bodies at the resurrection are not angelic bodies, because what we are, human being, will not suddenly become angel. We don't transform into a completely different nature. In the tapestry of existence, angels emerged with threads of compassion, guardianship, and grace. In the symphony of the cosmos, their ethereal wings echo a melody of timeless beauty, reminding us that within the mundane, the extraordinary unfurls. And in the whispers of angels, hope takes flight. Thank you for listening. This is a free podcast and is based upon the value for value model. If you find value in this or any episode, you can return that value by liking the show, leaving a review, sharing with a friend on your social medias. You can also donate on my website. Thank you again. This is BT for Truth and Shadow Podcast. You are the light.